the Gospel of John requires us as readers, as we, as we look at it, to take a second look. It requires us to do a double take. You look at something, and this can be in life in general or in this gospel in particular, you look at something the first time, and you, you kind of process immediately what is in front of you, and you think, I understand that. And then as you step away or as you take a second look or as you think about it, you realize, wait a minute, there may be more to the story than I thought when I first read it, than I, than I thought was there on the surface. And that is exactly the case in this passage today. When you take a first glance at this story, I've just read it to you, perhaps you read it in advance thinking about today's service, you read this and you go, okay, I get it. This is something we see often in the life of Jesus. This is a story of sickness, and then there is kindness and mercy. There's healing, and it is followed by, as often happens in his life, a conflict about the Sabbath and can you do these things on the Sabbath. Well, that's not bad. That's a good summary of what takes place here in the passage that is before us. And perhaps we kind of look at this and we say, all right, well, that's what has happened in this passage and I should imitate this. I should seek to do good to others and be merciful to others. Not bad, but the passage requires us to take a second look at it, to do a double take and to see what is exactly happening here, if you will, to kind of turn over the pages, to turn over the rocks of the passage and say, have I, have I understood all that I'm supposed to be understanding from the text today. We need to look hard and we need to think hard at this passage and at so many others because what is taking place is that for John, and I expressed this when we talked about the very beginning of John in John chapter 1, for John there is a fusion between the physical and the spiritual world. There is a fusion that exists between that which is present happening in time in front of us right now and that which is eternal. Jesus in this passage as it comes to a conclusion will bring together the works of God and the works that he is doing. Okay, that's, that's the eternal works of God that are going on and the work that he is doing at this particular present moment. For John, those two things are fused together and he's going to then to ask us to look at an event, this event in particular, and see those two things kind of coming together. So we look at this passage. Let's take the first look at this passage. And the first thing, of course, you notice in the passage is the man and his sickness. Now, unlike last week, we've got two stories that are set next to each other. Unlike last week, which was the case of an acute illness, right? The son of the official was on his deathbed and he was near death. We've got a different situation in this story. This is a long-term, long-standing illness that this man has experienced. He has been in despair, not for the short time of an illness, but for 38 years. He's been suffering with this, and I'll just for convenience sake call it a paralysis of some type. We obviously don't know the exact details of this, but some type of paralysis has afflicted him for all of these years. J.C. Ryle describes this man, and I, I, I think these words are great. 
describes the man as neglected, overlooked, forgotten, friendless, helpless, and hopeless. 38 years, who knows how long he's been at this particular place, but no one's ever taken him down. No one's ever been there to take him at the moment when the waters are stirred. His hope, and I'll put that in quotes, his hope is a vain hope. He sits superstitiously beside this pool. And I don't think we should read into this story that this pool actually affected healing. He sits there superstitiously hoping that at some point he'll get down when the waters are stirred, however and whenever the waters get stirred, he'll get put in this water and somehow a healing will take place. By the way, uh, just one note, if you were uh, paying close attention when I read it, you'll note that verse 4 is not included in what was in your text today, and it's probably not included in your Bibles either. The end of verse 3 and the end of verse 4 seem to have been additions uh, that were put in to try and explain what was taking place at uh, this pool. They were clearly added at some point along the way. They're not in the best manuscripts, and therefore they're not in our text this morning. Your Bible, if you're looking at it, probably has them in a footnote at the bottom of the page. Jesus comes to this man at this pool and asks him the question, do you want to be healed? Now, with wanting to respect the situation and our Lord, one might look at that question and kind of go, um, well, that's kind of a silly question. You know, of course I want to be healed. What do you think I'm doing here at this particular place, staying here? Do you want to be healed, Jesus says. But like so many questions, so many questions that Jesus himself asked, and so many questions that God himself asked, I can't help but when I hear this question, think back to Genesis chapter 3. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, don't eat? or you will die. Now, God knows the answer to the question, right? What he's trying to do, and what Jesus, it seems to me, is trying to do in this question to the man is to get the man to acknowledge what is taking place. Because as the man says this, what in effect he is doing is confirming, in his own words coming out of his own mouth, the true state of helplessness and hopelessness in which he finds himself. So the surface, that's what we see when we first look at this. We see the sickness, we see the pain, we see that desperation, all of those things are a part of this world. They are all around us, and it's demonstrably so in this man. This man has a long-term paralysis. He himself can do nothing about that long-term paralysis, and nobody's willing to help, and nobody can help him do anything about that paralysis. That's first look. Second look, second look also at the man now, helps us to see why that's the case. Why is there sickness and misery and paralysis in this world? We begin to peek beyond this world beyond the physical sickness. And the key, the clue, is found in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin 
no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The clear implication by Jesus as he says these words to the man is that your paralysis, sin, misery, sickness, those things that are in this world are connected with sin. In fact, they're caused by sin. They are birthed by sin. They don't belong in this world, but you have brought them into this world because of sin. Now, as we say that, there's a couple of things to keep in mind here. First of all, uh, I just the, the call to worship, you don't have to turn there right now. The call to worship, I, I chose it because it has this line, some were fools for their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. That's a reality. It's generally true that sin and that, that misery and sickness and pain are in the world because of sin. Having said that, and I, and I have to put a parenthesis in right now, we also have to keep in mind that in John chapter 9, there's going to be the man who was born blind, and the question comes up, who sinned to cause this? And Jesus is going to step back and say, wait a minute, you've got to think about this in a different way. So there's a lot to be said on this topic, but for now, what Jesus is saying is your sin is connected to consequences in this world. And it's one thing for us to acknowledge that, generally speaking. Generally speaking, we can say that sickness exists in the world, and we can expand it to death and suffering, exists in the world because of sin. But obviously, this is a particular situation. Jesus isn't talking to this man about sin in general, sin that's out there. Bad stuff is in the world, and therefore there's bad consequences in the world. Sorry that you're, you're, you're caught up in that. Jesus rather is saying to this man, especially in the call to repentance that he gives to him at the temple, he's saying, go and sin no more. Your particular sin is connected to your particular health. Go and sin no more is a way of referring to his particular sin and his particular pursuit of holiness because that is going to have particular consequences for him. In other words, the general truth is out there. Sin in the world brings sickness and death. Now personalize that. Personalize it. You can't just put it out there. It's true for you. Therefore, sin no more. Now we might ask the question, okay, what would be worse than 38 years of paralysis? What, you know, what's, what's next? And, and, and just so you know, the wrong answer would be, well, maybe blindness would be worse, or maybe cancer would be worse, or maybe leprosy would be worse. That's not the right answer to the question that is being asked here. The answer, what could be worse, is death, eternal death and judgment. The following section, the discourse, what follows on this passage is a discourse, a discussion about judgment, death, and eternal death. Verses 28 to 29. 
Listen to this in light of what Jesus is saying to the man right now. Don't sin anymore. Listen to 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Man, there is something worse out there. Sin no more, that nothing worse happen to you. Jesus is saying, don't misunderstand that which has just, just taken place. I am no mere earthly orthopedic surgeon specialist who has been able to heal your lameness and get you walking. He uses the physical misery of this man to point to sin and to warn of death and of judgment. Man, you have a problem. You have a long-standing illness. And the man says, paralysis? And Jesus says, no sin. There is nothing you can do about it. I can't get myself in the pool? Nope, can't get yourself in the pool. And you can't deal with your sin. And, and nobody can help me. Yep, nobody can help you with this. You have a problem that nobody can help you with. Taking two looks at it, that's what we understand. If that's the man in his sickness, then let's consider Jesus and his healing of this man. Take the first glance at Jesus and healing this man. We see it in, in the first place, the mercy, the kindness, the compassion of our Savior. He's not indifferent to the suffering. For whatever reason, he takes the initiative, and in this place, which is filled with, filled with people suffering from any number of maladies, he sees this man, he notices him, and he approaches him. And that's a great example for us, right? That's a great calling for us to notice those who are in need and to reach out for them. But clearly, as Jesus proceeds, he does something that we cannot do. We can't imitate this in Jesus. He actually heals this man, and he heals this man by the word of his power. Two things now, if you were here last week, let's put these two things next to one another. He healed an acute illness by the word of his power last week. And now we see that his word has power not over just something that is acute and just came on with him, whatever, the last couple of weeks, the last couple of months for the boy who was sick. But now Jesus, through the word of his power, has the ability to heal something which has been going on for 38 years in this man's life. He gives a command, verse 8, get up, rise, and paralysis leaves at his voice. Pick up your bed and walk. This isn't just a command, this is the next thing you should do. I think we should understand this. Ritterboss is great in pointing this out in his commentary. I think we should understand this as kind of a celebration. Jesus is saying, I'm not just kind of helping you to your feet, and those atrophied muscles won't work very well, so you're going to have to hobble along or have a cane or have two people on either side of you get you to the next place. I am healing you so completely that you are going to be able to walk on your own, not only walk up your own, take up your mat, take up your bed, throw it across your shoulder, walk and give glory to God. 
This is the victory of Christ over sin and over sickness and over paralysis. So at first glance, you kind of look at this, and it's a merciful, powerful healing of the paralysis, but with a double take, with a second look at this, we see that it is, in fact, more. Jesus is demonstrating the power of his word. All the time you have sat here, all of the people who have come and gone, and all of this stirring of the waters, and it's been 38 years, and you're still here. You're still locked in this condition. Now see the power of my word. My word is powerful not only for the healing of your body, not only for the raising up of your paralyzed body, but my word is powerful for the resurrection of bodies from death and the healing of the soul. In verse 20, we read Jesus speaking here. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead, gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he wills. Now, it's hard to see here in your English translation because the words are different. But the word that Jesus uses, get up, and the word that is used to say the Father raises the dead are the exact same words. So when Jesus is speaking to this man who is clearly paralyzed, it's a physical thing, you can see it with your eyes, it's right before you, he gives him a command to get up. That is a remarkable thing when the Son of God can say to a man, rise and get up. But, to say to a dead, buried body and soul, get up, arise, that's a greater thing. One is remarkable, and the point here is not to diminish it. The point is to put it in comparison to something that is clearly a greater work than the former, than that which we have seen with our eyes. The mechanism for both of these resurrections is exactly the same, and it's written all over the section that follows. Verse 24, he who hears my word. Verse 25, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Verse 28, those who come out of the tombs are those who will hear his voice. The mechanism for the resurrection is his word. His word has power to make paralysis flee, to rise dead souls. So at first glance, you take a look at this and you see the earthly healing of Jesus out of compassion. The double take shows that in reality, he's imaging for us eternal healing, eternal resurrection by the Son of God through his word. Now one would think that that's good news. That this is a remarkably wonderful thing. A man has been healed of paralysis, and more than that, 
eternal life is available through one whose word has the power to raise the dead. One would think it would be met with rejoicing, but alas, it is not. The healing is met with conflict, and it is no small conflict. It begins initially, when you take the first glance at it, it begins with conflict over the Sabbath. Now, we know that the Jews appropriately took the Sabbath quite seriously, and they were quite particular in observance of the Sabbath and rules defining clearly what you could do and not do on the Sabbath. And so when this man is seen carrying his own bed, his own mat on the Sabbath, note, he's not helping somebody else. He's not carrying a bed for someone. He's carrying his own mat. This is seen as a violation, a violation of God's commands and a violation of how God's commands have been interpreted or clarified by the authorities of the Jewish tradition. And of course, this guy, eager to avoid those accusations, eager to avoid condemnation of the Jews, the man, when he is confronted, blames Jesus. Now, in the story, of course, he doesn't know at this point that it is Jesus in particular, but he blames the man who told him to get up and walk. Now, I want to say something here at this point. This man's actions throughout this passage are suspect. If you lay his words and actions up against the man in chapter 4 that we read about, or the man in chapter 9, chapter 9 parallels this almost exactly in terms of content and what goes on. This man doesn't confess the faith well. At least it seems to us as we read these things. The authorities, of course, would rather have the source of the problem than the symptom of the problem. If we've got somebody who's going around telling people to carry their beds on the Sabbath, then let's go after him, not this guy. And so the persecution of Jesus begins. What has dropped from view is what seemed so evident at first, that a lame man now walks. That seems to have dropped out of the picture and instead healing on and commanding someone to carry a mat and walk on the Sabbath, that's now the first look issue. That's now what we see. In verse 17, Jesus replies to the Sabbath issue with a response that is going to require a double take as well. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Remember that the Sabbath command, as it was originally given, as it is recorded for us in Exodus chapter 20, the command that we have to rest on the Sabbath is founded upon the rest that God took after the work of creation. But the Jews, in thinking about this, recognize that God's rest cannot be an absolute rest. Because if God absolutely rested, then there would be no life, there would be no sustaining of the world, there would be no protection of the world, there would be no keeping of things running. And so therefore, God's rest must be understood in a qualified kind of way. Resting from his initial creative work, but continuing in his sustaining 
providential work that cares for the life of the world. God the Father did not cease working. And so, when Jesus says this, in the double take, Jesus has, has in that simple statement, lifted up eyes beyond healing on the Sabbath, beyond carrying your mat on the Sabbath, and he's lifted up eyes into upholding the universe, sustaining life and being in the universe. That's what God does. So all of a sudden, we're in another issue immediately, but it gets worse than that. Because Jews could speak about, and this is now to look at this verse more particularly, Jews could speak about the fatherhood of God. It was acceptable to speak about the fatherhood of God. But to speak with this level of familiarity, to identify him in an unqualified way as my father, you are treading on very thin ice when you make that claim. Furthermore, to equate God's sustaining work with the work that he had just done, to make an equivalency between those two, is to suggest an identity between the two, and it was blasphemy. Jesus is making the comparison. This is what my father does. This is what God does. And this is what I do. It implies equivalency of personhood with that familiar language. And therefore, verse 18, which I didn't read earlier, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus' point is this. If my father has the authority to work on the Sabbath, which he does, then so do I. This just became way more complex than a healing and a carrying of a mat on the Sabbath. The question is now before them, how do you respond to a man who claims to be and does the work of the unique son of God? That's the question. That's what's going on behind this passage. How do you respond to one who claims to be the son of God and does the works of the son of God? And the next section, as we'll look at the discourse, makes that demand clear. The call of the healing at Bethesda is to honor the Son of God and to believe in him, verses 22 through 24. The Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And in the passage, as it is before us, it doesn't seem like the Jews, and it doesn't seem like the man are ready to honor the Son and honor the Father. Eternity has broken into this world. 
the two things, eternity and this world, are interconnected and dependent upon one another. And the call of a passage like this is to show us that the misery and the suffering that we experience in this world should call us to look not only to the immediate, not only for present relief, but to say, what does that teach me about eternity? How does that direct our thoughts and our hearts towards God? And the connection between the two says to us, but now, now is the time for being merciful. Now is the time, and I'm going to try and put this in the language of the text, for sinning no more. Now is the time for doing that which is good. It seems to us that now and eternity are separate things, disconnected from one another. For Jesus, for John, those are fused together. They are mutually dependent upon one another. And so now is the time. And now is the time not merely for us to be merciful to others, as Jesus was. More foundationally than that, this story says, now is the time to honor the Son. Now is the time to hear the voice of the Son of God, to hear the words of the Son of God. Now is the time to believe in the Son of God. Why? Because we have an incurable and terminal disease. You can't do anything about it and no one can help you, save this unique and only Son of God. At first glance, just another human that Jesus does. But when you take a second look at it, when you go back and look at it again, you see, wait a minute, this applies directly to me, not just if you're sick right now with something, but it applies directly for the hope of everlasting life for our soul's well-being. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, pray that you would help us to hear these things. It is so easy for us, and we acknowledge it all the time and before one another, to become preoccupied with the things of this world that we forget that the veil between this world and the next has been torn away by Christ. We pray that you would help us to see the connection between the two. For those who are sick, we pray that you would help them to bear up, not only physically, we pray not only would you feel, heal them physically, but you would save our very souls to the uttermost, that you would raise up our bodies on the last day to be with you for all eternity. Jesus, thank you that you are such a Savior and our hope. We pray in your name. Amen.